This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens New Orleans First nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the NOLA Public Schools Administration recently prepared a document outlining a host of changes to the district's standard charter contract, but ultimately decided not to present those changes to the Orleans Parish School Board for consideration and approval. The Louisiana Parole Board voted unanimously to rescind parole for longtime inmate Bobby Sneed, though he was cleared of all disciplinary charges at the prison. In a reversal from last year, New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell has come out in favor of a proposal to place a ballot measure on the November 13th ballot that would fully renew a key property tax that provides nearly half the annual funding for the New Orleans Public Library. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining me this week, Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Michael Isaac Stein is here. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Charles Maldonado, our Lens editor. Hi, Charles. Good morning, Carolyn. So, Marta, in schools, NOLA Public Schools proposed a slew of changes to the charter contracts, but declined then to present them to the school board after revealing them to charter leaders. What were some of the big changes contemplated first in this draft? I think this was a really big potential change that was maybe coming. Um, there, there had to be at least, you know, probably three dozen different changes in here, some of them big, some of them small. Um, certainly what stuck out to me was a increasing kind of centralized reporting. So even though the district oversees these schools, they don't necessarily know about all the things that go on within them. For example, what really stuck out to me was that uh, the charters would now have to report any suspected child abuse to the district. They would have to report any safety or threats to students to the district. Um, they would have to put uh, their special education plans in their handbooks, you know, which is more of a kind of a transparency issue for parents. Um, they also we're going to expand the definition of retaliation towards parents so that, you know, ensuring that lines of communication between parents and students or parents and schools could stay open. Mm. Um, and so just to be clear, school charter schools already have to report, you know, suspected child abuse to the state and to different agencies, but they don't have to tell the district about it. Okay. So these are pretty key. There's some pretty key issues in here before we get kind of dig deeper into some of them. They only gave a six-week timeline for the changes, which included approving them next week. What what happened with that timeline? Yeah, so they presented these in mid-April to the charter school leaders, and this is all, I'm going to call it offline, right? Because the public doesn't know about this. This is kind of a negotiation between the district, OPSB, and the charter school leaders. So they presented this. It, it seems like charter school leaders, I don't know if they were caught off guard necessarily, but were, were not interested in such a short timeline the way that it was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the Orleans Parish school board members that I talked to also seem to agree that this is too short of a timeline and that, um, you know, this process needs to be codified. Like any changes to these contracts should be codified in a different, in a very clear process. And that's not kind of what was happening here. So the district pulled back and they did not end up presenting these changes to the board. So I have a question about that, even though, because it's obviously moot now, because they're going to go instead uh, down a policy route instead of making changes to the contract. 
but had they gone this way, is this a give and take like any contract negotiation or is this just, this is the new contract and this is the way it is? See, I think that's a great question because I, in theory, it should be, this is the new contract, this is the way it is, right? In, in terms of, you know, who's running the show or who holds the power. But that's the, the thing here is that the school board does not hold the power. I don't think the charter operators do hmm. because they run all the schools. So it's a, it, it is absolutely a give and take because um, the, the balance here rests with the charter schools. Right. But, but, but on the other hand, the goal, the goal remains and, and, and the standard practice is now to have a, to have a standardized, you know, contract template for all charters. Right. Right. And, and they started that in 2017, but we still aren't there because some people right. have had, you know, five year, 10 year contracts. Right. Right. Can I, can I ask you, um, do you have any sense from charter leaders who maybe objected to this, whether they objected purely based on the process or also on the substance? I have heard no one object on the substance, but uh, many people were upset by the process and the, and the short timeline specifically. I see. So tell us how they then are pivoting to policy change and do you think that's gonna be effective? Sure, so the districts, um, when we reached out to them, uh, I heard about this potential change and when I asked for these documents, they said, well, you know, it's not actually gonna happen. So this is kind of a moot point. And we we're like, well, we're still interested in, in seeing these documents. So hmm. um, we got a hold of them through a public records request. And the district said that they are gonna go through a, a policy route. Um, and as far as policy goes, I don't, you know, policy is not gonna be ineffective by any means, but it is definitely a different kind of relationship to the schools because school board policy, not all school board policy affects charter schools. You'll have to do it in a specific way to ensure that they have to follow certain policies, if that makes any sense. You know, like when, yeah. for example, the, the school board passed a minimum wage for cafeteria workers years ago, raising it to $15 an hour. That doesn't mean that charter schools have to pay their cafeteria workers $15 an hour. It right. just means that the Orleans Parish School Board has to pay its cafeteria workers fifteen dollars an hour. Mm, so, right. How does the board affect policy that that actually does affect the charter schools? Like, what's the difference in the process? They are going to have to. Any policy changes are going to have to be in, I believe, policy HA, which is um, mostly affecting charter schools. Mm. So they're just going to have to be a little more, you know, methodical about where these policy changes take place, I think, within their own policies, which... Uh, so it's, it's purely an issue of where to, like, who's voting to make it appear in a certain place in the policy book. I believe so. And it it, it just makes it more complicated, right? Because they have, there's so many things in, in, in these contract changes that could fit into different areas of the school board's policy that mm -hmm. I think that you just have to, you just have to make sure you know you're, you're putting it in the right place, I suppose. My next question is then, why do this through a contract template change to begin with instead of doing it through school board votes on policy? Were they, were they concerned that, that, you know, if done through policy, it could violate state charter law in some way? Or, or what was the reasoning for that? It's unclear to me why the initial route was through contracts. But what I think I'm gleaning from that is that if you change the contract that's more of an actual you know contractual ob obligation relationship between these two entities and it's easier to 
you know, kind of point out when or if they violate it. And the district has, you know, specific procedures in place for if you violate something within the contract versus if you violate a policy. And both can be issues, but, you know, we've we've seen these non-compliance notices um, kind of pop up and become more formalized in the last, you know, year, couple years or so. And those are generally based on violations of their charter contract, even if it includes, you know, parts of federal or state law. I also just want to say, I am not a lawyer, but these are this is my general understanding of why you would go the contract route versus the policy route. It's possibly more, it's possibly more efficient too. It's something that can be, you know, it's contract negotiations. It's not something that occurs, you know, in, in a big public meeting with public comments and, you know, the politics of the school board and everything. Right. And I, you're exactly right. I think that's exactly what we saw. So <laughs> it sounds also like they, it has more teeth that it's, it's more enforceable when it's a well, contract and, and violation. The one parent advocate I talked to, you know, he said, I don't understand why these are mutually exclusive. Like mm. just do both. Oh, good point. Uh, so t- one of the more uh, emotional issues, I guess, uh, was about parent retaliation. Can you tell us about what that, pr- what those protections are that are being contemplated? Yeah, so I talked to um, Taylor Castillo, who um, is the program director for Our Voice Nuestra Boss, which is a nonprofit kind of organizing group that helps or, or that aims to ensure that there's equitable education for you know all students, and then also tries to kind of raise the voice of parents in the in the education movement here. So in in February, his group and a bunch of parents who are part of it made a presentation to the board and they basically were asking for kind of expanded protection and then also increased accountability from the school board for any time that a parent has, you know, kind of a retaliation issue or basically any issue with the school. Um, You know, if if the school starts ignoring them when they have a problem with their child, if, if the school kind of you know, boxes them out in different ways. Um, Basically, his group is saying that, you know, retaliation is happening to parents and we need to make sure the parents have protection. And -hmm. so that was actually one of the things that was written into this contract change. And the OPSB members I talked to said, you know, I don't think necessarily the reason this is the contract changes are off the table is not because schools don't want to improve things, but this is one thing that is, you know, no longer currently on the table for this contract change. And Taylor, you know, said, hey, you know, it's pretty disappointing. And I don't understand why these things are mutually exclusive. It was pretty cool to see that in writing because we shared the plan with him. And and he's like, to see it go away is, is upsetting. That would have expanded the definition of retaliation towards parents. What happens next? I don't know. Exactly. They, the, the district says it's going to, they're going to pursue it uh, through policy changes. So we will see what is on OPSB's agenda, which uh, will come out Friday evening. Okay. Where are we with COVID now in schools? The cases dipped a bit this week. And then obviously we have rather exciting news, which is that vaccinations have been expanded uh, to 12 through 15 year olds. So I think, you know, that that's going to be a, hopefully a, a boon for summer school, summer camp, anything you can think of. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see what the, if the districts can kind of help in that distribution because it, we're coming up on the end of school here. And uh, kids definitely had a very rough standardized testing week. I think, you know, maybe like all of us because we didn't get any sleep. <laughs> wow, right. 
Do you know how many kids have uh, are, are lining up to take the vaccine? I don't. Um, I haven't specifically asked the district for that data, but I am not sure they would share it. But that is a very good question. Okay. All right, Marta, thanks. Thank you. Okay, Nick, in criminal justice, last week the Louisiana Board of Pardons and Committee on Parole rescinded Angola prisoner Bobby Sneed's grant of parole even after a prison disciplinary board acquitted him of disciplinary charges. On Monday, there was a new parole hearing, and this time parole was denied. Give us the quick reminder of, of what the story is with Bobby Sneed, who he is, and, and what was going on. Right. Um, so Bobby Sneed is, is uh, incarcerated at Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. He is a 74-year-old man, and he's been uh, incarcerated for 47 years. He was, the, he was the lookout in an armed robbery in which uh, a man was killed. Uh, uh, Mr. Sneed was, was not the one who who killed the man, but was convicted of being principal to second-degree murder and given a life sentence. So back in March, Mr. Sneed was granted parole by the parole board in a, in a hearing that lasted about uh, 15 minutes. Um, you know, uh, uh, lots of nice things were said about him. The, the board agreed that um, he had, had done everything he needed to do in prison to, um, to uh, allow him to be released. But prior to his release, after he was granted parole, but prior to his release, just days before his release, he collapsed in prison, um, was sent to the hospital, and spent uh, several days in the ICU, and, and, and nearly died. During that incident, the prison officials administered a drug test on him and alleged that it came back positive for uh, amphetamines and methamphetamines. Um, so once Mr. Sneed was able to be released from the hospital rather than, rather than going home as, as was uh, planned, he was sent back to the prison and put in a disciplinary unit and, and uh, awaited a disciplinary hearing to see if he had violated disciplinary rules um, related to having contraband in prison. If someone tests positive for drugs, then they can be uh, uh, written up for a, for a contraband charge. Um, so that, that disciplinary hearing took place last week, and the disciplinary board determined that uh, they could not, could not prove that, that Mr. Sneed had actually uh, taken drugs, and he was acquitted of that charge. You know, I think what, what Mr. Sneed's attorney and, and what uh, I, I think mo most people uh, assumed was then that that would mean the parole board would go ahead and, and move forward with his release. Right. Instead, they the next day they decided to go ahead and rescind his parole um, in spite of the disciplinary board's decision. Um, so, so what that meant was he was going to have a new uh, parole hearing, and that took place this Monday. And on Monday, they I, I mean, it's not even fair to say they rescinded his parole because his parole had already been rescinded. They did not grant him parole anew. Yeah, that's right. It was a it was a new parole hearing in light of these these recent developments. That's right. And he's not in great health, right? No. So he's had a stroke um, and and had to uh, sort of relearn all these basic functions. Uh, you know, kind of walking and talking. And so at the hearing, you can see you can he he speaks very slowly. He's he uh, you know sort of uh, slurs his words a little bit and. And yeah, he, he's, you know, he's 74 years old. And, um, so it's, it's quite, um, you know, getting, getting up in age. And that's, you know, something that his lawyer has, has been arguing. 
before the disciplinary board hearing, his attorney was making the case that even if Mr. Sneed took drugs in prison um, in between this time, that is not a good reason to keep him there um, beyond the, the you know 47 years that he's already served there. He said that he's, he's lined up inpatient treatment for Mr. Sneed that's fully paid for if, right. he, if he is able to be released. Um, so that, that was sort of the initial, the, the starting point of this story uh, prior to the the disciplinary hearing and, and, and the subsequent, um, you know, rescission of his parole after, after his acquittal by the board, you know, that, that still kind of remains an underlying question all is, should this be a reason to, to keep someone in, in prison when, by all indications, you know, just back in March, the, the board had determined that that he was really no, no threat to society and that he had had a pretty exemplary record in, in prison prior to this. Right, and if the prison itself releases him, from any disciplinary charges and basically washes his hands clean. What's the justification then on the parole board's part to deny parole? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a big question um, for me. And, and at the hearing, it was it was notable. So so at the meeting on Monday, um, which was distinct from, you know, how, how we would think of the disciplinary board hearing, there, there was really no evidence heard there was no weighing of whether or not Mr. Sneed was in fact guilty of using drugs. Mr. Sneed denied using drugs and he denied an allegation that the board made that he had uh, admitted to using drugs to medical personnel as well. But it was, it was very clear that the board had already determined um, a few things. They had, one, already determined that in fact Mr. Sneed was guilty of, of using drugs that he had, and he had violated prison conduct. And they had already determined that the fact that he had used drugs meant that he should have his parole revoked and he should not be released from prison. There was no discussion at the, at the parole hearing of whether or not a violation of a contraband violation prior to being released should mean that his, his parole is rescinded. Uh, it was uh, appeared to be kind of consensus of, among them that both, in fact, he had used drugs, and that that means he should continue to to be in prison. Oh gosh. Okay. So what happens next? Now he he waits again for another appearance in front of the parole board in a year, or he'll be eligible to apply for another parole hearing in March of 2022. Uh, the board does not need to grant him another hearing. Um, they do that at their discretion. And then he would you know, have to go in front of the board again and they could decide whether or not to grant a parole or to deny it again. I also think that it is likely that his lawyer will be filing some sort of lawsuit around this. Um, his lawyer has made, has made the claim that, that the decision to rescind the parole was illegal um, mm. He's, you know, made the arguments that I think I think that the parole hearing was not conducted in, in a legal way. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what what all his arguments will be, but I but he has definitely indicated uh, that that there will be some legal action taken around this. Mr. Sneed's lawyer, uh, his name his name is Thomas Frampton. Mr. Frampton at the hearing alleged that. Prior to Mr. Sneed's parole being rescinded, he had had a conversation with the executive director um, of the, the Board of Pardons and Committee on Parole, who suggested to him that 
if Mr. Frampton were, were, were willing to agree to a deal in which Mr. Sneed would um, spend nine months in a, a sort of intensive drug treatment facility, a prison facility, then he would uh, make sort of make these, this, this whole situation go away. And Mr. Frampton suggested that that was, that was improper, of, you know, namely because he hadn't even had a chance to talk to Mr. Sneed about, about this potential deal. You know, and I, I talked to Mr. Mr. Abbott about it, Francis Abbott, who is the executive director of, of the board, and um, he told me that, that he had had a conversation with, with Mr. Frampton and that treatment was something that was discussed, but he denied this uh, sort of ostensible plea deal um, that, that Mr. Frampton suggested. He said that basically he doesn't have the authority to, to do anything like that because he only acts as sort of the liaison between the board and, and various stakeholders. That's true, you know, but he also likely has some influence over, over the board's decision and, and, and could potentially, you know, facilitate something like this, although he said, he said that he did not. So how that plays out, too, and whether or not that, that was in violation of, of any either policy or, or, um, or law, um, I'm not sure. And then one, one other thing maybe to point out is that the parole board's own policy around rescinding parole is that they may rescind per, a, a parole grant when they are informed by the Department of Corrections that a prisoner has has committed some misconduct. In this case, you know, the Department of Corrections sort of adjudication process found that Mr. Sneed did not Clear, Cleared him, right. So whether or not the parole board, you know, I think that probably what Mr. Sneed's attorney would argue is that the parole board Overstep. didn't have sufficient reason to rescind the parole. You know, I asked Mr. Abbott about this and he said, this is something that they've been following and that basically their own records, and I think, you know, he pointed to medical records that had been provided to them by the Department of Corrections, was sufficient uh, notification that, that he had committed uh, misconduct despite the fact that, that he had been adjudicated and found not guilty. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for that update, Nick. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadwa, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. We provide the information and analysis necessary to advocate for more accountable and just governance. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org donate. Thank you. Michael, and another story of a, a reversal. Uh, Mayor LaToya Cantrell came out in support of a plan to renew dedicated funding for the public library system. This is a reversal from last year when the mayor tried to push through a plan to cut 40% of the library's budget. What funding are we talking about and what's happening now? 
Yeah, so the, the public library system is primarily funded through two dedicated property taxes, meaning that all the money raised by these property taxes goes straight to the library. Both of the taxes were passed um, and put in place through ballot initiatives that uh, Orleans Parish voters approved. Um, the first one was approved in the 1980s, and it expires at the end of this year. Um, the second one was approved in 2015 and doesn't expire until 2040. Um, so basically, the goal now is to, to put something on, on the ballot in, on November 13th to renew the expiring millage. Okay. What was Mayor Cantrell's position last year vis-a-vis -vis funding for the library? She was fully supporting something, but it was not a, a, full, a full renewal of the tax. It was, a, it was only a partial renewal of the library tax and a, a, a diversion of the remainder of that money to other things, including an economic development fund and an infrastructure fund, a, a, small, a small amount for, um, for early childhood education. The early childhood education bit, like I said, is a relatively small amount of only $1.5 million a year of you know, more than 10 million that we were talking about. But, you know, that that kind of became the that was that was sort of the lead part of their PR strategy was, you know, vote vote to fund public education, but or early childhood education. But but the, the larger effect of the tax proposal would have been cutting the library's budget by 40 percent and also uh, sending a bunch sending several million dollars to an economic development fund that we didn't really know what they were, what it was going to be used for specifically. Right. Yeah. So, so basically the, the library had been planning on, on asking for a full and complete renewal, um, the type of renewal that will now be on the ballot this upcoming um, election on November 13th. Last year, the mayor kind of stepped in front of the library's plans, got ahead of that and, and put forward this other plan that, like Charles explained, would have distributed library funds to a lot of other places. Um, the other thing that last year's ballot initiative would have done is it would have not only reduced the library's millage, but it also, it would have changed the way that the money flowed. So the way it works right now, the money goes directly to the library. Um, the way that the ballot language was uh, set up last year, the money could be used either for the library or for early childhood education programs. So the way that that was going to pan out at our understanding was that the city council was going to have to vote at the beginning of each year um, about where that should be allocated. Mm. So even with the, the reduced millage, I mean, there was still, you know, a risk that in future years, you know, the mayor doesn't like what the library is doing. You get a future mayor that isn't as friendly to the library that they could cut that money. So not only is this a full renewal, but it also is going directly to the library and it doesn't have to go through anyone else. You know, it's basically what the library originally wanted. Um, so basically in, in December, voters rejected Mayor Cantrell's plan that would have cut the library's budget. Soon after that, the city council said, okay, that failed. This year, we're gonna put, you know, a full renewal on the ballot. Um, but before we do that, we need y'all to come up with this 10-year strategic plan um, that will show us how you're willing to change, adapt, expand, use this new money, and make sure that it's not just sitting in an account unused. So this week, um, the library came out with that plan. Mayor Cantrell held a press conference to announce her approval of it. We haven't heard from the city council yet, but again, it was just recently released. But it does seem like the library has cleared a major hurdle here. Mm. Um, you know, of getting this, of getting this done. So, and in the plan, and this seems like, you know, it was, it, it was obviously a, a deliberate choice 
probably in part to, to get uh, mayoral uh, backing. It includes certain elements that are similar to what was in last year's proposal. So again, as Michael explained, this is a full renewal of the tax for the library. All the money is going to the library, but the library is now offering to provide certain services that align with with the priorities in last year's plan. So mm. last year's plan had an economic development component, as I mentioned. Uh, the, the library strategic plan, you know, is there, there includes, uh, we're going to offer uh, small, small business support and, and workforce training. Um, you know, there was obviously early childhood uh, education aspect of last year's plan, and the library is offering you know, some early childhood education services as part of its 10-year strategic plan. I think, you know, those things had a lot to do, obviously, with the, the mayor coming out in support this week. We've also seen the early childhood ed issue pop up in city council, which I don't know if they're 100% aligned with the mayor, but basically there were many city council members this year who, you know, there's a special Harris fund that uses tax money from Harris that, you know, is dedicated used to be dedicated to the Orleans Parish School Board and now is just dedicated uh, in the contract rewrite this spring to basically education and any type of education. And so the Orleans Parish School Board was counting on that money this spring and there were some city council members who said, we want to put this toward early education and don't count on this next year. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and just to clarify that point, because this frankly has has confused me recently by and large opsb is a k through 12 entity um there are some you know there are some charter schools that offer some early education programs but its overall mission is is k through 12 and not early education right and they can't put k-12 money towards you know pre-k or early childhood education it, right. you're very right in that sense but but it was interesting to see this kind of they were basically pitted against early childhood education and they said we can only do a limited amount but yeah is right that it's it now it has a broader area of uh, what it can put that money towards and they expressed a lot of interest in early childhood and, and when when the city council and the mayor talks about funding early childhood education so usually what they're talking about is funding seats in private early childhood education programs um, which are really really expensive um, i think it's somewhere in the ballpark of like fifteen thousand dollars a year per kid um, so what I think is interesting about the early childhood education discussion in terms of funding it through the city council is that there are, I mean, the, the city has done surveys and found thousands and thousands and thousands of kids in this city that are in, that can't afford these programs on their own and need assistance. But at a price tag of $15,000 a year, I mean, you'd need tens of millions of dollars, if not upwards of a hundred millions of dollars, uh, upwards of a hundred million dollars to actually meet that need. So I've never heard any discussion about what the end game is here. I mean, it, it so sounds like, you know, I, I don't think, I don't know if I've ever heard any plan that will actually get all these at-need kids into private early childhood edu education programs. Um, so again, I, I think that's something to keep in mind when we're talking about funding early childhood education, because I really don't understand what the long-term plan there is. Yeah, funding early childhood is way beyond the city's capabilities. That's the the long-term plan is to hold their, is to, is to cross their fingers and hope that Congress comes through with something. Right. I think, yeah, I mean, I just remember when we were talking about this last year, there was an argument of, okay, you know, you could give this 
money to you know these early childhood education programs last year the the money they were taking away from the library would have funded like 100 kids um a year for these programs and and the argument to the contrary from from library uh, workers was we work with educators and caregivers to put together early childhood education you know packets and and programs that people can you know access for free and isn't that maybe a more effective way to encourage more broad early childhood education than selecting a few dozen kids to you know get this pretty expensive private program but right. anyway. and, and and so to an extent to, to 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 that argument um this 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 strategic plan sort of rep, maybe represents the library putting putting its money where its mouth is and saying, here, we're going to actually, we, you know, we said we could, we could help out with early childhood education. Here's how we're going to do it. Now, the question to me on early childhood education, on the economic development components, is how much money uh, are we talking about? Like, you know, because that is not in the strategic plan. And I think that was a point of contention this week amongst at least one or two library board members. Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of these things... You know, I, I will add that this strategic plan part of it definitely, you know, seems, you know, some of the writing is definitely aimed at, at you know, convincing the mayor who had these specific ideas of how this money should be spent. But it seems to me that, you know, supporters of the library, library workers and the library board are, are actually pretty excited about the plan as well. So, you know, it, you know, the mayor wanted early childhood education funding. You know, it's not like librarians are, are against that idea. And I think our excited about the library being a little bit more you know conscious and and um intentional about you know really helping people through their early childhood education i mean i'll point out specifically andrea neighbors is on the library board and she was probably the most vocal opponent um on the board to the mayor's um, plan last year and um it seems worth noting that she was really positive and really excited about this plan so hmm. you know while i think there's parts to satiate the mayor i, I think that there these are things that the library and librarians already want to do. I, I think the economic development piece will be interesting, a little bit more interesting than the um, early childhood education piece. Um, I mean, I think, as was the case last year, I think early childhood education was was dragged into a controversy where it ne didn't necessarily belong. I don't think anybody's necessarily against early childhood education at the library. When, when I'm talking about, you know, the details on money and resources, from the library possibly being diverted to other things really that you know it, it, again early childhood education is maybe going to end up as a collateral damage of, of some of the controversy but the real issue i think again is how what what does economic development exactly mean in this context and what library resources are being put toward that right but one more thing I'll add is that, you know, although the mayor is now, you know, supporting this full renewal, I do think that something that is changed from a few years ago is that the mayor seems to be way more involved in the direction of the library now. Um, we're seeing it already. Um, she, you know, putting city hall offices, putting putting satellite offices into library buildings. The um, district attorney is now, you know, uh, working to put some diversion programs into space in the libraries. So. I do think that's something to look out for is, is you know, again, the, the, the mayor's office and the city being a little bit more, you know, involved on that detailed level about the direction of the library. So, Michael, what happens next? Yeah, so so actually the, the, the ballot measure is not officially um, 
on the ballot yet. Um, so the city council still has to move to officially put it on the no- November ballot. I don't see, um, you know, a, a big obstacle there. Um, um, I think we can expect that to go pretty smoothly. Um, and then there's the election. So, you know, there's always a chance that voters don't approve this. I mean, in the past, the library has been pretty popular as, you know, kind of their, their tax propositions have kind of sailed through. Last year was kind of a weird one. Um, I know there's some concern that there's like some lingering distrust from last year since, you know, the library administration itself supported a plan that would have cut its own budget. So um, there has been discussion about whether there's a trust issue now. But yeah, I mean, the library will, will start campaigning, um, encouraging people to go out. It'll be up to what voters decide. But the first thing is the city council has to put it on the ballot and then, you know, the voters go to the polls. Here's where we kind of get into politics of the tax proposition vote. So this isn't necessarily true. And, and actually, last December, we saw a, 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 an example to the contrary. But the conventional wisdom is that a lower that that lower uh, turnout elections tend to produce better results for tax tax proposition. The theory being that you know you're 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 going to get uh, a mix of chronic voters who who know the issues well, who realize that if something doesn't pass in November, that means the library will just lose its funding because it, the tax expires at the end of the year. So a mix of those people and people who are specifically coming to vote for certain issues. So. You know, this November, right now, it's looking like the mayoral election could very well uh, be wrapped up in the primary in October. And that would mean that we're not going to have a big marquee election in the in the November general um, and could, as a result, have much lower turnout. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Carolyn. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.